Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great treat to have Jason Jordan on the show. Welcome, Jason. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of all three of his books. You might even have more than I know of, but Cracking the Sales Management Code, which is my number one recommendation for any sales management book out there. Crushing Quota, which I think is equally good, if not better, and builds on that book. And then uh, his newest book, Sales Insanity. Jason is the CEO of you know Jason Jordan, right? That's right. I am Jason Jordan. So he's a professional management consultant in sales, a brilliant thinker on the subject, and also a lecturer in sales and sales management at the University of Virginia, which is something we're going to talk about today, about can you teach sales in school to people who don't know about sales? We'll also talk a little bit about what it's like going from being a consultant for many years to actually having to operate because he's also been the interim CRO of a number of places. So a ton of stuff to talk about. Jason, I'd love to start to get to know you a little better for those who have not read your books or seen you on stage. What are your favorite sales books or just books in general that you love? So you know, I'm a fan of anything Neil Rackham ever wrote. I worked with him and he's, to say he's a mentor is overstating it, but you know, having conversations with him about writing and his view of things really influenced my thinking and writing style. And, uh, you know, spin selling still the top hundred sales books on Amazon printed in the late eighties. The Miller Hyman stuff for account management, I love. Uh, I like Mark Roberge's book, Sales Acceleration Formula. I think it's interesting from it's kind of like where marketing meets sales a little bit. I think it's timely with all the BDR, SDR stuff that's come about. And then the other will be Trish Bertuzzi's. I'm sure you know Trish. I think those are foundational for their time, right? You couldn't have written those books in 1988 like you could write spin selling. I post a quote a day or a data factoid a day on LinkedIn, and I'm constantly pulling the Rackham quotes out. And they read today as if they were you know, written today, even though they were written 30 plus years ago. He said to me one time, he said, if I have to work too hard to explain something to someone, I can be pretty certain that I've gotten it wrong. Where I can add value is when someone knows something intuitive, and I can give them the frameworks to make it usable and practical. And you know, stuff in Kraken Sales Management Code, we didn't make up a bunch of jargon uh, you know, we didn't try to coin a bunch of phrases. We said, hey, there's call management. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, call management. You know, <laughs> my goal in life is to simplify things where I think a lot of people think the elegance is in complicating them. So I read the premise of cracking the sales management code as there are three things you need to pay attention to activity, objectives, and results. And of those things, the only thing that sales managers really control is activity. You know, it's funny because we go around talking about we need to manage revenue better or we need to manage our market share. You can't manage that. If you could manage quota, everyone would make quota, right? And so it's something people know intuitively, but no one really says it explicitly to them that you can't wake up Monday morning and obsess over quota. You have to get up Monday morning and obsess over what you're going to do to eventually get to quota. And you know, that's why, where we get into conversations about measuring activities. Is that old school or new school? I think it's new school. I think the more practically oriented people are, even at the sales leadership level, the more effective they are, um, just because you see things that don't look right and you can fix them. And when you fix the activities and the behaviors and the way people are thinking about what they're doing, you can really have not only a huge impact in the near term, but you can elevate people's games when they you know, understand better how things work. I'd love your help in addressing a paradox. And the paradox is we have people who are better educated. We have sales enablement tools, sales enablement content. We have tools to help you 
with your activity. We have sales management coaching tools. We have great processes. Like we have all this stuff, right? More than we ever had historically. And we have to really check the data. People believe, and it's probably true, that a smaller and smaller percentage of reps are hitting quota over time. How do you think that's happening? That fewer reps are hitting quota, and yet we have an abundance of support for them. There's no shortage of things you can do to improve your sales team, right? The trick is finding one or two things that really make a difference. And I don't think that enough people step back and are thinking about what really matters here. You know, we just keep layering on tools and we keep layering on training and we layer on processes. And a lot of those just don't get to the root problem. And the root problem is not the same in every sales force. You know, some sales forces struggle with lack of rigor. In that case, processes probably would have the biggest impact. Some people have processes that work pretty well, but the, the team is um, unstructured. In that, in that case, you know, technology can help them. And in some cases, people just don't have the skill set. Training can help there. But, you know, it's not the same issue in every sales team, probably not even in every salesperson. That's kind of what we think is that if we throw enough stuff at sales, it will improve. And it's, it's exactly the opposite of what is the case. It's like going back to metrics. You know, it's like if we can push out enough data into this field, people will use it to perform better. In reality, you probably should send out three pieces of data, right? The number of activities you performed, the change in your sales pipeline, and the things you sold last week. And that's it. Now, someone in the organization should be you know, doing all the analysis with all the data, try to find trends and underlying things. But the sales team shouldn't see five reports of 50 data points each because it just becomes noise. Some managers will object and they'll say, yes, I will coach on activity for those reps who are not hitting quota. But for those who are, I'm going to leave them alone. What's your answer to that? It kind of gets to the who do you coach question, right? Do you coach the top performers? Do you coach the middle performers? Do you coach the bottom performers? And I think I have the answer to this age old question. Coach the people who are coachable, right? Coach the people who want it. You know, some people just soak up coaching and the more attention you give them, the better they'll be. And other people would pay for, for you to keep away. And, you know, I think the first cut on who you coach is where your time is best spent. And it's not best spent with a low performer or high performance, best spent where you're going to make a difference and have an impact. A question that I've come to ask not only the salespeople, but also especially sales leaders is what's the best sales coaching advice you ever received? And another one is um, what's your favorite methodology what, or what favorite book have you read that's most impacted the way you approach your profession? And, you know, if someone can't think of any coaching advice they ever got, there's an indicator. <laughs> and if they're not investing in their own development by having read books or on training programs or you know used methodologies, then it doesn't knock you out of contention, but it puts you in a light that you need to overcome with me personally. Have you, you know, either through data and research or just through years of practical experience, come up with any sort of recipe for identifying what's a great sales manager? Well, I think there are two different levels here of leadership. And this is, I think people don't appreciate the difference between a frontline sales manager and an actual sales leader. Like I think there are two, not incongruent, but two different skill sets. Because someone asked me, and I've been asked this recently because I'm trying to hire someone to replace me at this company. And we've gotten a lot of candidates that came up through marketing or came up through operations or didn't really have a traditional carry the bag thing. But when you speak to them, they have leadership chops. And, you know, when you ask them to describe how the sales force works, they have very thoughtful responses. They understand the mechanics of how it works. And so, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd happily hire someone who has good leadership and management skills and good disposition and understands the basics of the sales function. Right. But, but I would not hire that person as a sales manager because the sales manager has to coach. 
and they have to have run into walls and they have to have been coached before and they have to know what good looks like. And it's not that complex a role. You talk to people to un- understand their needs. Hopefully you can match that with some way that you can help them. And there you go. <laughs> and, you know, we obsess over the sales activity, but really you're just trying to facilitate buying. And I think that, you know, if anyone who's alert and pays attention and has some empathy and asks questions could probably end up being a pretty good salesperson, throw in a couple of books and a couple of training programs. I don't think that's the case for sales managers. I think that I'll be a little immodest here. You know, at the time when we wrote Cracking the Sales Management Code, which was 2011, there really weren't sales management books floating around. And I'm not saying that we invented sales management. I mean, that would be laughable to say. But if you look on Amazon, just look at the top 100 sales books, you'll see plenty of sales management books now, all written in like 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. There really weren't many floating around in 1985. If I had $10,000 to train my sales force and I had to choose, I would absolutely spend that money first on the sales leaders, sales frontline sales managers. Because if the sales managers understand what they're supposed to be doing, the salespeople will get better. But just training the salespeople and not the sales managers, you're kind of putting a lot of faith in the fact that they're going to self-regulate, right? They're going to self, self-administer self um, goodness. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. And I was, I was taught this in the company I spent the bulk of my career at. First, you train the sales managers. And once you train the sales managers, you can train the salespeople. But the managers, I guess, are going to do a lot of on-the-job training of the salespeople as a rep. That's where I would assume most of the coaching happens, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you're designing a sales comp plan, we used to always say that between two thirds and 75 percent of your sales team should make quota. If you're a sales leader and 100 percent of your salespeople make quota, you're getting fired because your leader is going to believe you're not pushing them hard enough. You mean every single person made their quota? This is our quote. And, you know, so we're really talking about the delta between 66 percent and 55 percent. Right. It's not as tragic as. People make it for the purposes of, you know, selling training or selling whatever they're, they're doing. But the genesis of, of the book, Cracking Sales Management Code, I don't know why I'm talking about this book so much. I don't think I've even written this anywhere, um, my blog or whatever. But anyway, I was in Manhattan at American Express's headquarters and we we're doing some consulting. It must have been early 2000s, I guess. And and we're getting coffee or whatever. And I was talking to a guy and he goes, yeah, I was in the, believe it or not, I was in a meeting the other day with the global head of sales for for American Express. And I go, wow, you know, I'm sure it was, he was, and there were 500 people probably, but, and he said, um, yeah, he asked a really interesting question. He said, how do I know if my sales force is any good? He said, is it because they hit their quota? Well, I, I assigned their quotas. I can make them succeed or fail with an email tomorrow. If my revenue is growing faster in Europe than in the United States, does that mean the European sales team is better? Well, I don't know. What's the regulation? Who are the competitors? What's the, what's the economy doing? And that question just started bugging me. Like, how do you know if your sales force is any good? I mean, how do you really know? And I felt as a consultant selling sales improvement, I should have some kind of answer to that. And I just started collecting sales management reports because the thought was, if this is what IBM is measuring in their sales force, this must be what they think is the measure of good. Right. So I started getting a bunch of these reports and I'm sure you can imagine what I saw when I got it. it was just chaos. Like no one was organizing the same way. And I just became obsessed with sales metrics. You start staring at them and you think, well, not all of these are equal, right? They're all on the same page, but number of calls isn't equal to revenue, right? Like how can those be on the same page? You start, and then originally I had manageable and unmanageable metrics. So I had a spreadsheet with all this stuff, but it was this idea of, you know, how do you know if your sales force is any good? And, you know, the quota question is pretty fundamental. I mean, you, you make their quota and you can make them fail or you can make them succeed. I think the real issue is, are they improving? And I think that's the real goal of sales leadership is to have their sales team proving, right? Because in a vacuum, 
if I have a 45% win rate on my deals, is that good or bad? I don't know. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I get it to 46 and 47 and 48 and 49. And, you know, we, we try to put kind of benchmarks in place for what's good and what's not. But the real point of most metrics is they should just be improving. And then you don't have 10 methodologies and 14 technologies in your stack. And, to, you know, you start focusing on what's going to fix that problem and move that number. We just get obsessed with this idea of our reps not hitting their numbers. And I think we're missing the point a little bit. I want to throw one of your quotes back at you because it's, it's the most contentious thing, I think, inside of your sales insanity book. So I'll read it to you and then you can react. Never raise objections on behalf of buyers. Raising objections on behalf of your prospects won't make you appear more proactive or credible. You have to uncover objections so you can try to dispel them. Why is that so near and dear to your heart? Sales Insanity is a book that I wrote. It has 20 stories, basically. 10 stories about sales management, things I saw, and 10 stories about sales person behaviors I saw that, that I just thought were egregious or even laughable. And it, it's meant to be a comedy of sorts. Um, so there's short, short little stories, five to seven pages each. And this particular one, I was shadowing a salesperson one time and we, you know, we got together for lunch or breakfast or whatever it was before the, before some sales calls. And I said, so walk me through what you're going to do in the sales call. And he said, well, I'm first going to make introductions, of course. And he said, there'll probably be six or seven people there on their side and, and the two of us. And then I'm going to start, you know, handling objections and just dispelling them. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, everyone always has the same objections. So I just going to, you know, when I open the meeting, I always like to just go through them and spell them. And so I was like, okay, you sure? And <laughs> I was going, hey, maybe this is what you're supposed to do. Let me sit, step back and just watch. And I mean, it was something to behold. You know, he said, hey, I just want to start out by saying, you've probably heard a lot of things in the marketplace that, you know, we're a small company and there's, there's risk in that. Well, we have financial backers and and he just kept going on like six or eight of these things. And people were writing, scribbling down. Like people didn't have any objections. They were just there. And someone called him into a room to watch a sales pitch, right? And, you know, he, he would say, oh, you got to kill the monster while it's small. I'd love to talk a little bit about education of salespeople in undergrad, in business school. Is this a possible thing, right? Can you teach a business school student or an undergrad how to sell in a classroom? Okay, so several things. Probably 15 years ago, some folks and I, people who started, I don't know if you know the Challey Group, uh, Howard and Sally Stevens, and a, a few of us started a foundation called the Sales Education Foundation. And we have tried to promote sales education in universities around the world. And we actually keep a list of people who have formal programs, not just classes, but have you know degrees, undergraduates, certificates, minors, whatever it is. And there are about 140 of them in the United States. And I'd encourage you to go to salesfoundation.org and just download the annual magazines. We publish this every year, and the number's grown. When we first started, it was 40. You know, now out of what, how many thousands of universities and colleges in the United States. So I'll tell you the story of teaching at Darden, which is the business school, the MBA program at the University of Virginia. So I went there as an undergrad, I mean, as a, as a grad student. And when I moved back to Charlottesville, which is where I, where I live now for the last 15 years or so, I met with the guy who's the head of marketing. I just liked him when I was there and having breakfast. And I was actually trying to introduce him to Neil Rackham. Actually, I was doing some networking. And so nothing of it. You know, I introduced him to Neil. And maybe a month or two later, he sends me this email. And he says, Jason, the students have asked for a course in selling, not sales management. He puts in parentheses, but sales, personal selling, he called it. And uh, he said, I have no interest or ability to teach this. Do you know anyone who can? I was like, yeah, I know someone that happens to live in Charlottesville. I, I thought it was like being asked to coach the Olympic team, you know, like, hell yeah, I can do this. And it was a lot of work, obviously, because it wasn't like just going to get some marketing cases, right? I mean, this, the content doesn't exist, right? I had to justify this course. And so I started looking around at peer schools that had any kind of education. 
like MBA programs, whatnot. And so anyway, since then, I've been teaching this class in sales and sales management. It started out just sales and then now it's kind of morphed into kind of a half. I start out as sales. We're doing role plays and all that kind of stuff. And then and then we get into sales management, coaching and things. And so what I'll say is, I mean, sure, you can teach people how to sell. Some people gravitate more toward it and are more excited by it than others. But what I would also say is that everyone in those classes will be better for it when they go into organizations because they'll have to deal with sales. Right. And there won't be this black box. Like I'm never going to be in marketing, but understanding how marketing fundamentally works is useful when I start thinking about how that feeds into sales. Right. Both as air cover marketing and as enablement. Right. But I've had dozens of people tell me through email or encountering me at a reunion or something that it was the best class they took at Darden. They said, you know, my peers do not understand sales and they're scared of it. And I'm not in sales, but I interact with them all the time. And, you know, it was the most practical, useful thing that I've, that I've had to use since then. And I'm sure there are hundreds of people who would never say that, but literally everyone, if they found themselves in the right role within a sales force, could have a good career, right? Whether it's managing accounts or banging the phones or, you know, sending out emails, SDR kind of stuff. And people often ask me, what's the biggest new thing in sales, right? And and people always talk about the technology revolutionizing sales, right? Technology gets all of the focus, like that's been the last 20 years is the uh, social media and, and all the automation and AI. And we talk about all these things, but the real innovation in sales in my mind in the last 20 years has been specialization. In 1995, we didn't have SDRs, CSMs, we didn't have sales operations or revenue operations. We didn't have sales enablement. You know, sales has gone on this this 20 or 30 year run where they've just been insourcing everything that used to be done outside of the sales force, right? Incentive compensation used to be in finance. Training used to be in HR. IT used to be in IT, right? And now, you know, sales teams are the ones implementing Salesforce. And sales enablement is doing the training and sales operations is doing the incentive calculations. And I think that's actually been the real innovation over the past couple of decades is specialization, not only bringing specialists in-house, but also breaking the sales cycle into little pieces, right? Probably led by SaaS, where they've been, I think, the most innovative in customer success managers, BDRs, SDRs. And so I think that I think people don't give enough attention to that. I think that's actually been the biggest revolution in sales. Some would argue that we've over-specialized. You know, let's say I'm buying something. SDR reaches out to me, book a meeting. That's the last I hear from them. Talk to the AE. AE sells me, hands me off to implementation. Implementation spends their time with me till I graduate, hands me off to customer success. Assuming that customer success doesn't have commercial responsibility, this new person called a renewal manager comes in and, you know, slaps a contract with some increase on my desk. Have we over-specialized? It's a good question. I'm going to... Bring up. I've got Neil on the mind now. So Neil once told me the story, so it has to be true. He told me that this is like taking the hunter-farmer model to the next level, right? And so the hunter-farmer model, as Neil told me, and I credibly believe that the hunter-farmer model was born in the insurance industry, that insurance agents used to go door-to-door and sell insurance policies, and then they'd go around and collect the premiums, right? They had a coupon book, literally, or whatever it was. And eventually, one of them called on and thought, hey, we have these people who are really good at selling. Why do we have them walking around picking up dollar bills, right? And the hunter-farmer model was born. And the critical thing to the hunter-farmer model working when you can separate the salesperson from the product, you want the product. And the product stands alone from the company uh, besides reputation and you know need for upgrades and things. And you know, some industries where the tie between the company and the product or the salesperson and the product is closer I think you can over-specialize. You're doing yourself a bit of a disservice. Since now, in many instances, outside of professional services, the product and 
the sales experience are separable. People give salespeople this advice that they should become like deep subject matter experts who add value over time. Given the separation of the salesperson and the product, does that mean that's bad advice? You know, I think a salesperson needs to understand the product enough to apply it to the customer's problems. You know, I think the salesperson, the best salesperson is the customer expert, not the product expert. But but as long as you know enough that you can identify an actual problem and issue and bring enough to the table to explain how your product or service is going to benefit them and alleviate that problem or take advantage of that opportunity, that's enough. Getting back to teaching sales, because I took you down a different rabbit hole too quickly after that. I'm curious, as a final question, what are the two or three favorite topics from the student's perspective that are in the course you teach? So I teach stuff from Neil's book, of course, that he wrote with John Devencenis called Rethinking the Sales Force. It basically defines consultative versus transactional sales modes. And people really lean into that for whatever reason. I think they just have never thought that there are things that are very transactional and happen very rapidly. And then there are other things that are very consultative. And the value is as much in the buying process as it is in the service or product that you get. Whereas in a transactional sale, the value is in the product itself. It's intrinsic value is what Neil would say. Um, People really like that. People really enjoy the role plays that we do. We do call planning, you know, do the classic three people, right? The buyer, seller, observer, and rotate around. They really, really dig that. And we do some coaching role plays as well. So I think they really like getting insight into what is sales and kind of the models and structures, just kind of that appeals to the MBA type anyway. If people want to find you, what's the best way for them to, outside of finding your books on Amazon, but if they want to find you personally, because maybe they want to engage a fractional CRO or someone who can train their sales leadership and sales management? Uh, LinkedIn's the best way. Type in Jason Jordan sales or something like that and pretty easy to find. Outstanding. Well, thanks again for being on. No, Jeremy, thank you. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.